I want to just remind all of us that when we have this opportunity to go back tonight to the Lord's table, these are the proper qualifications. One, first and foremost, faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want me to turn it on? Yes. You turned it off. I turned it off? Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we must be personal disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone for our salvation. We should be those who have followed Him obediently in baptism, which symbolizes our union with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. We should be part of a Bible-believing local church as that means of grace which He has ordained for our growth and our maturation, or at least in serious pursuit of that. And we should not be living in impenitent sin. If you meet those qualifications, and I hope you do, we welcome you to the table tonight. More importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ welcomes you. Now, my purpose this evening is quite simple. I want to comfort every true believer with the reminder that the sins that you have placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ were so perfectly atoned for that you will never, ever, ever see them again, not even in judgment. Not only have the sins of such people been thrown behind the Father's back, banished from his judicial memory, buried in the depths of the sea, and separated as far as the east is from the west, but they have also been carried away into what the Bible describes symbolically as a vast wilderness a wilderness of forgiveness where they will never, ever be seen again. Maybe you have anticipated my text, if you're quite familiar with the Old Testament. It is Leviticus chapter 16, and I would like you to turn there, please. This is the chapter which tells us of the Day of Atonement. I would encourage you to live in this chapter for about a week at least. Just live in it. Read it over and over. Meditate upon it. The Day of Atonement, which was the tenth day of the seventh month, which would be comparable to our October, was clearly the most sacred day in the entire Jewish calendar. In fact, it came to be known as the day. And it is rich in its symbolism, especially as it foreshadows the coming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you the providence that directed me to this passage. I've been watching a riveting DVD which records the debate of one of the leading atheists in the world, Christopher Hitchens. 
with Douglas Wilson. I'm watching it probably for the third or fourth time. And you will be interested to know that tomorrow, Pastor Sam will be showing that debate in the Heritage Room at KWC for his students and perhaps other students from the college will be attending. I think he's going to be utilizing two full periods because in his own teaching, he's been confronted by a few students who are atheists. I told him about the DVD. We watched it together. He's made arrangements. But in this debate, Christopher Hitchens, who, by the way, is now dying of cancer, argues that Christianity is bad for the world, and one of his first lines of argument is that it is immoral, and one of the most immoral things about Christianity is that it teaches its adherents to cast their sins on someone else, which he deems to be utterly irresponsible. And I've thought about that a lot. And I thought how wonderful it is that, in fact, we can cast our sins on someone else, and it is not immoral. By the way, he has no right to use the word immoral, because if you're an atheist, you have no grounds for a standard of morality. If we don't cast our sins upon someone else, God will cast us in hell But he has lovingly and graciously provided someone upon whom we can cast our sins, may cast our sins, and there will be no immorality involved in that because his absolute perfect justice will be satisfied. And if Hitchens cares about morality, then he should be very excited about a God who has found a way to forgive sinners and still be just. Thinking about that, my mind went back to Leviticus 16, because even Hitchens reminds us that this whole concept of a scapegoat emerged in this Judaism and now is prominent in Christianity, and he disdains the thought. I want us to think tonight about the concept of scapegoat. So that's the providence that directed me there. Now, in this Day of Atonement, recorded for us here in Leviticus 16, which probably belongs immediately after chapter 10, actually, because um, Nadab and Abihu had just been executed by God for their blasphemy, for their irreverence, for their violation of what we would call the regulative principle. And in this chapter, there are sort of three aspects, three different activities that were to be carried out by the high priest Aaron, and later by his sons and and those who followed. The first thing he had to do was to offer a sacrifice for himself, a, a sin offering. And he was commanded to take a bull and to kill it and to sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat and on the ground in front of the mercy seat. Because he had no right to offer a sacrifice for the people while he himself was guilty of sin. And though Aaron was symbolic and typical of the coming Christ, here we see what an imperfect type he was, because he had sins himself that needed to be atoned for, as did every other earthly priest taken from among men. 
And so immediately we see how beautiful our Savior is. Because when he comes to offer his perfect sacrifice as the final high priest, he has no sins to be atoned for for himself. So Aaron sacrifices a bull, sprinkles its blood. And then in the middle part of this work of his for the Day of Atonement, he goes to the door of the Tent of Meeting and he casts lots upon two goats. The one lot fell upon the goat that was designated to be sacrificed for the Lord. The other lot fell upon a goat that was designated to be the scapegoat. And that was central, and I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. And after he sacrificed the one goat and laid his hands on the other and sent it into the wilderness, he came back into the tent of meeting, changed his garments, which, by the way, were all linen for this day of atonement, not the normal priestly garments. Linen probably primarily designed to symbolize the purity that was needed and required for the work of a priest. He put back on his more colorful robes, bathed himself, and then offered a ram for himself and a ram for the people in the form of a burnt offering. Those are the three major components of the 16th chapter of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. I want to focus tonight for just a few minutes on the main sacrifice, the sin offering made for the people, because that is typical of what our Savior has done for us. So I'm going to ask you just to notice with me verses 15 through 22. This is after the casting of lots. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Probably that means on the ground. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. I just pause here and ask a question. Why would the holy place need an atonement? Look at the next words. Because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. You see, the people of Israel, including the priests, polluted even the holy of holies by their near proximity to it. It's sort of like mankind polluting the whole universe. And so at the end of history, before the new heavens and the new earth descend, there's going to be the Holocaust, a final purification for that which we have polluted. And so he makes that atonement. Now notice the middle of verse 16. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, not just the holy of holies, but the tent which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. 
No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull. That would be what he used for his own sin offering and some of the blood of the goat. That's what he sacrificed for the people and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Isn't it interesting? The Old Testament priest was was called upon, was commissioned to help the people of Israel find forgiveness of sins. And yet the very priests themselves polluted the temple. If their sacrifices had been truly efficacious, that is, if they had really succeeded in totally cleansing man from sin, they wouldn't have to be done again next year. Because even the priests would be holy. But no, these sacrifices couldn't. They could only symbolize a coming cleansing. So annually this had to be done, and the very repetition of it reminded the thinking Israelite that this cannot be the final thing. This is not perfect. This is insufficient. Verse um, 18, Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, And confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And then comes the third part that I've already talked about. The sacrifice to the rams for the burnt offering. Now, let me just quickly summarize the significance of this, and I must move along very rapidly. You see what's happening. There are two goats. One is to be slaughtered, and its blood is to be sprinkled on the mercy seat and on the ground and in the tent of meeting and on the altar, particularly the horns of the altar. And when he has performed this rite, which is symbolic of the taking away of sin, expiation. have to use the word. It's, it's an important word. The removal of sin. When he has performed that rite, that only through the shedding of blood is there remission of sins. Then he goes out of the, the tent of meeting, or at least to the door of the tent of meeting. He'd already come out of the Holy of Holies. And he finds the living goat, and he puts his both of his hands on the head of that living goat. And he prays and confesses all of the sins of all of the people. It must have been amazing. If he was a godly priest, he knew his people. 
And it would have been something to hear those confessions. Can you imagine someone putting their hands on the head of a goat and confessing all of the sins of all of the people of Heritage Baptist Church tonight? Without mentioning your name, but saying things like this, Oh God, please forgive those husbands who have not loved their wives in a Christ-like way. Please forgive those wives who have not shown respect and submission to their husband's leadership. Please forgive those children who are in rebellion to parental authority. Please forgive those parents who have not loved their children and cared for them with compassion. And on and on, please forgive those men who have looked upon women with lust. If you were a true believer, your heart would have been broken and at the same time filled with hope to know that the high priest was confessing sins on your behalf after an expiation had been made for those sins. And then you see what happened with that goat. As soon as he was done with that prayer, and it must not have been a short prayer, that goat was then led by a man who was prepared to lead it out into the wilderness, where it would eventually be released to wander on its own, further and further away into the vastness of that wilderness where there were thousands, if not tens of thousands, of little valleys and ravines like we thought about when we were thinking a few weeks ago about where Elijah was. And if you had faith to understand what an unbelievable comfort that would have been for you to stand outside of the camp and watch that that man take that goat upon whom your sins were symbolically placed. The sins that had already been atoned for and expiated, now symbolically carried away. Now, you see, what we have are two goats representing one Savior's work. Because the Lord Jesus had to first make an atonement for our sins, in order for them to be removed from us. And so God chooses two goats to symbolize the one perfect work of our Lord Jesus Christ in expiating our sins and carrying them away. Now, boy, I don't know that I should do this. I'm just going to say briefly that the Hebrew word for the scapegoat is Azazel. And I have to tell you that there is some difference of opinion as to the significance of that name. Because it would seem as though it's a person. One goat for the Lord, one goat for Azazel. Who's Azazel? There are those who believe with some reason that it was a name attributed to a demon who was symbolic of the devil himself. The Jews believed that demons lived in the wilderness. At first, it seems like that's crazy. That's just a crazy idea. And I'm not able to entirely embrace this with the studying that I've done. But good, godly, wise, conservative scholars believe there's some plausibility in this. And say, well, what in the world would that be? Why would you release a goat to go out into the wilderness to somehow, as it were, find the devil. And the answer is, 
because the sins that were imputed to the goat were forgiven. And it was God's way of triumphing over the devil and saying, You, accuser of the brethren, the sins of my people have been paid for. And here comes the goat representing all of their forgiveness. I'm just going to read for you uh, one comment by uh, a helpful commentator. Some of you men are familiar with uh, the man by the name of Kellogg. I'm thinking I have it here. Maybe I don't. I'm not seeing it right now. Well, anyway, what he points out is that um, it's the fall of Satan described symbolically in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, His followers triumph because of the blood of the Lamb. But the more common viewpoint, that's, you see, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on that. At least be aware of it. The more common viewpoint is that that word simply is a compound word. The first part of it meaning goat, and the second part of it meaning taken away, and therefore scapegoat comes to be the translation. One thing is for absolutely sure. No, two things. There has been an expiation made for the sins of the people, and they're being removed from them. That's very, very clear. And that's what I want to comfort us with tonight. I want to comfort you with a reminder that not only, as I said in my introduction, have your sins been thrown behind the Father's back and banished from his judicial memory and buried in the depths of the sea and separated from you as far as the east is from the west, they have been carried away into a vast, howling, land of forgetfulness called the wilderness, never, ever to be seen again. So I conjure up in your minds again the image. If you had faith and understanding and you watched that man leading the goat away and he became smaller and smaller and smaller, and you really were able to say to yourself, that goat represents the removal of my sins from me because of the expiation of the goat that died and whose blood was shed and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Oh, how wonderful to see my sins so far removed from me. And eventually the goat becomes a little speck and ultimately it literally disappears. Why is that in Leviticus 16? Because it was designed to help the people of God and even those without faith to see how God forgives sins. That's what it was designed to do. This whole thing reminds us that God is infinitely holy and that sin separates us from him and that forgiveness and restoration of fellowship can only be obtained through an atonement. And this whole thing reminds us that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were imperfect and insufficient and had to be repeated over and over and over. But we see a high priest who is a type of Christ, imperfect, but a type of Christ nonetheless. We see bulls and goats and rams and lambs, types of Christ. And I remind you tonight that what that high priest represented, the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled. And the the beautiful thing is that he not only is the high priest 
to make the atonement, but he is the sacrifice himself. The priest offers himself, and that scapegoat pictures for all of us tonight how far our sins have been removed from us. That's glorious. So should we be surprised to be reminded tonight that there are two high priests? There are a lot of twos in the Bible. I think you've been hearing about them recently. So we've tried to make you more and more acquainted with what is called biblical theology, the oneness of the storyline throughout the entirety of Scripture. Two creations, two Adams, two probations, two Moses, two Paschal Lambs, two tabernacles, two temples, two Aaron's, two high priests, two days of atonement, two Davids, two Israels, two covenants, and one perfect and final Savior. I want you to hear what Spurgeon said about the scapegoat. And this is, I think, the the preferable understanding. In a sermon coming toward the close, he puts it like this. A fit man selected for the purpose led this goat away into a land not inhabited. What became of it? Why do you ask the question? It is not to edification. You may have seen the famous picture of the scapegoat representing it as an expiring uh, animal in misery in the desert place. That is all very well and good. I do not wonder that the imagination should picture the poor devoted scapegoat as a sort of cursed thing left to perish amid accumulated horrors. But please... Observe that this is all fancy, mere groundless fancy. The scripture is entirely silent as to anything of the kind and purposely so. All that the type teaches is this. In symbol, the scapegoat has all the sin of the people laid upon it. And when it is led away into the solitary wilderness, it has gone and the sin with it. We may not follow the scapegoat even in imagination. It is gone where it can never be found, for there is nobody to find it. It is gone into a land not inhabited, into no man's land, in fact. Stop where the scriptures stop. To go beyond what is written is unwise, if not presumptuous. Sin is carried away into the silent land, the unknown wilderness. By nature, sin is everywhere. But to believers in the sacrifice of Christ, sin is nowhere. The sins of God's people have gone beyond recall. Where to? Do not ask anything about that. If they were sought for, they could not be found. They are so gone that they are blotted out. The scapegoat is not spoken of, and the silence is part of the instruction. The scapegoat is gone, we know not where, and so our sin is vanished quite away. Nobody will ever find the scapegoat, and nobody will ever find the believer's sins. And finally, he says this, where are my sins? Oh, where? Echo answers, where? Gone to the land of nobody, where Satan himself could not find them. 
yea, where God himself cannot find them. He says he has cast our sins behind his back where we cannot see, and so forth. So that's my word of encouragement. We're going back to the table now here in just a moment. And we're going to uh, remember what our Savior did for us. And I'm saying to you tonight that his work on the cross provided the two functions of the two goats. One, to make expiation for our sins. The other, to carry them away where they can never, ever, ever be found again. This is the good news. That was the gospel being preached during the days of the Old Testament, through the Day of Atonement. For unbelievers, that was the gospel. For believers, that is the gospel. And we see the beautiful and perfect fulfillment fulfillment of it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this, I would ask you to um, turn to Hebrews 9, and after I read the passage, we pray. Hebrews 9, just notice with me a few verses. Verses 11 through 14, and then chapter 10 through 14. And see how our Savior is the second final high priest. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, though the greater and more perfect tent then through, excuse me, the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then I would ask you to notice the same verses in chapter 10, 11 through 14. See the contrast between the earthly priests and our Savior. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you especially for coming as the final priest, for being the great high priest who entered one time into the Holy of Holies with your own blood, making the way for all of your people from that day forward. We thank you that you perfectly propitiated or satisfied the wrath of God toward us. We thank you that you perfectly expiated our sins. We thank you that you perfectly covered them with your own blood. And we thank you that you have removed them from us. That they, as it were, have been carried 
by a goat into a vast wilderness. Oh, Lord, help us tonight to enter into the joy of that forgiveness, that kind of forgiveness. We thank you for what you have done for us, and we pray that our love for you will well up in our souls as we remember how you did it for us. So bless us, Lord. Thank you for this. Be gracious to any who have not yet looked to this Savior. Oh, Lord, we pray that tonight, not only from what they've heard in this room, but what they may see symbolically portrayed in our fellowship hall, that they will see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.